Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're saying goodbye to spring and hello to sweat. In other words, summer, a season many Washingtonians can describe rather vividly. Muggy. Sunny. Moist. Sticky. Sleep-inducing. Suffocating. Swampy. Those were people in D.C.'s Farragut Square sharing their thoughts as we launch full steam ahead into summer. Now, here at Metro Connection, the arrival of summer means it's time for our annual Feeling the Heat show, an hour-long sojourn with stories about all kinds of heat. We'll head to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, where scientists are hot to trot about a brand new mission that'll explore a mysterious region of the sun. We think that the energy that's going through the heat and everything that's flowing through the solar atmosphere, that that's really where all the action is happening. And that's what IRIS is going to be looking at. And we'll visit the furnace at the University of Maryland's art department, where students dial up the heat to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit in the pursuit of beauty. The pour means that we will be melting the metal in a furnace and then using a crane and some other tools to lift the molten metal out of the furnace and pour them into the molds. Plus, we'll meet a D.C. student who's been feeling a different sort of heat as she copes with her mother's drug addiction. School is like my way of escaping everything. I figured what my mother's doing doesn't have anything to do with my schoolwork, so I'm not going to like use that as an excuse. But before we get to all that, earlier this month, on the 5th of June, a 93-year-old Washington institution was feeling the heat in a most devastating way. That night, for reasons still unknown, Frager's Hardware on 11th and Pennsylvania Southeast caught fire. And longtime owner John Weintraub, or JW as he's often called, was there. As he and I stand outside the boarded-up store, he recalls what happened. Well, it was a normal day at, <clears throat> excuse me, at Frager's, and uh, there was our cashier, main cashier, Melinda, and I think a customer tipped her off. They smelled smoke. And where is it coming from? Well, our side door out to 11th Street. So I opened the door and just saw this total blackness, smoke. could tell that was serious. Didn't see any fire, but I did uh, grab a fire extinguisher and I tried to move into the space, but it was so pitch black. Uh, and, and the heat got to be too much. So then I ran around, took the fire extinguisher. Meanwhile, several staffers were following me with fire extinguishers. And so then we ran around the side to 11th Street, and then I saw the flames. And the median street just watched it burn. And as you did so, what was going through your, your mind, your heart? Crying almost. <laughs> From uh, 6.30 to about 12.30. We had to talk to the fire marshal and... Um, and uh, then I was still burning, and I think it probably went on all night. It took more than 200 firefighters to bring the blaze under control. And when I peek inside the store's garden side with managers Kristen Sampson and Ricky Silverstein... Do you want to take a peek? Sure. All right. Can we open the door and... Yeah. All right. I can see why. This is... Um, oh, my... Wow. This is aisle 10 over here. That's the garden. That's... Um, fertilizers and mosquito repellents and plant foods. To your left is garden tools. Sharing that aisle is uh, the tool uh, section. Next aisle over is, um, is more tools, drill bits, 
drills, saws. Ricky has a picture-perfect memory of all those narrow, crammed aisles with their super-high ceilings. And then way in the back of the store is the key counter. That's um, our famous key counter. But you'll notice when he speaks about the store, he uses the present tense. Because, as Kristen Sampson puts it, even though the insides are, yeah, pretty much a wreck at this point. The roof and the second floor collapsed, and you can see the sunlight streaming through on these tangled, charred remnants of what it was. Fragers had such a vibrant community energy to it. You know, people who would be like, you know, I'm having a really bad day, so I thought I'd come and see you all and, like, come to the hardware store. Like, that's huge. That you can't help but imagine it coming alive again. When you picture it with all the life, all the activity, all the relationships, and the stuff, you want to get that back. And little by little, Fragers is getting that back. I'm going to get t-shirts. Do you guys got a new shipment in? No, not Not yet. yet. We are down to large, extra large, 3X, and one youth small. Well, I'm looking for a youth small and probably a large or an extra large. We have Maybe you've got what I'm looking for. We're on 7th Street Southeast, across from Eastern Market, at the Fragers Pop-Up, which the city helped open shortly after the June 5th fire. In addition to selling special commemorative t-shirts... All right, so the front of the shirt says... Fragers on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., established 1920. On the back it says, not on our watch, 6-5-2013. The temporary outdoor store is peddling a variety of garden goods, including the very same plants it used to carry at 11th and Pennsylvania, from annuals to perennials to all kinds of herbs and vegetables. So all of these plants survived the fire? All these plants survived the fire. Fortunately, it was a blessing that the fire didn't get totally out of control. Matthew Lovelace is a manager at the pop-up garden store. He started working at Fragers eight years ago when he was fresh out of high school. And he says immediately after the fire, he and his 60-some co-workers seemed to be first and foremost on the community's mind. I've had an outpour of help. People who were offering, you know, positions at certain places. So apparently I've impacted a lot of people. Owner John Weintraub says he's keeping as many staff members on payroll as possible. And to help with that effort, the Capitol Hill Community Foundation has begun channeling donations. Nikki Simrat is the foundation's president. Capitol Hill Community Foundation basically responds to lots of needs in the community as they arise. But on that evening, I was getting emails from people saying, I've just made a $500 contribution to the Fragers situation. I hope you all are going to do something. So... They did. The foundation quickly established a special fund to pool all the contributions coming in for Fragers. Immediately, overnight, in the next several days, contributions were just coming ding, ding, ding on my telephone. I put it so I could hear them. (laughs) As of earlier this week, the foundation had collected $110,000, and not just from Capitol Hill, but from all over the country. Because the way garden manager Matthew Lovelace sees it, when you shop at Fragers, you're family. 80% of the people that stop by, we know who they are. And by us building these relationships, we're touching everyone. And by this happening, no one could ever see Fragers leave. What are your hopes for the future? That Fragers rebuilds bigger and better and stronger than ever. And John Weintraub feels the same way. For now, he and his team are operating on a more or less impromptu basis, using temporary offices, the temporary garden shop. And uh, we 
close to maybe getting some warehouse space, temporary warehouse space nearby. Then we'll have a little place to store stuff and keep stuff. But in the long run, he says, he hopes to rebuild right here on this corner, where for nearly a century, faithful customers have flocked for everything from seeds and screwdrivers to pet supplies and popcorn carts. And that's one reason why, you know, I hate to give up. People look at me and say, hey, why don't you walk away? But uh, it's hard to walk away when you've got a functioning good staff and such loyal customers. You're just lacking one thing, and that's a a building (laughs) to sell it out of. It looks like it's going to be a long, hard road. To learn more about fundraising efforts for Fragers, including the Capitol Hill Community Foundations Fund and various benefits being held around town, visit our website, metroconnection.org. This next story in our Feeling the Heat show will head from the heart of D.C. to a rural corner of southern Virginia, not too far from the North Carolina border. You'll find a bunch of soybean farmers out there. And as temperatures rise, the farmers are entering the most important part of their growing season. But this summer, there's an eensy-weensy little problem, an invasive species commonly known as the Asian kudzu bug. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson talked with a man who may be watching this bug more closely than anyone else in the Commonwealth. Virginia Tech entomologist Ames Herbert is leading me into a soybean field outside the small town of Emporia. He reaches down to examine the stems of the two-foot-tall plants, looking for clusters of the Asian kudzu bug. But at the moment, it's another insect that has him regretting his decision to wear shorts. Tell you what, you got some healthy skeeters out here. We get about 20 rows into the field and spot the kudzu bugs, about 10 or 15, huddled about halfway up each plant. Each one is only about half the size of a pencil eraser, shiny and the color of coffee or caramel. Herbert says the Asian kudzu bug eats like the smaller, sap-sucking insects known as aphids, a type of bug gardeners know all too well. Both aphids and kudzu bugs latch onto plants and slowly drain them of moisture. The kudzu bug looks like a cross between a beetle and a stink bug, but comes from the platyspid family of insects. Herbert says it's something local soybean farmers have never encountered. It's the first pest that we've seen in the U.S. in this this group. It's not a stink bug. Um, It's a new... Completely new insect. Researchers don't know exactly how it got into the states, but the kudzu bug was first spotted in Georgia four years ago. It quickly spread, proving that it would eat much more than its namesake weed, and had a taste for soybeans, reducing crop yields in some places by more than 20%. The past few years have seen the bug move into South Carolina and North Carolina as well, but this summer marks the first time the invasive species has been spotted in Virginia soybean fields. It is changing the economics of soybean production, which is a big crop in Virginia. We have almost 600,000 acres of soybeans in Virginia. It's spreading very, very rapidly, 
uh, both north and west uh, from, from the original introduction site in Georgia. Herbert says luckily, researchers in other states have established a bit of a track record in dealing with the kudzu bugs, so growers in Virginia can learn from past mistakes. One risk is overusing pesticides, killing the insects that might have eaten Asian kudzu bugs and creating a fertile atmosphere for more pests to move in. Those natural enemies can go a long way towards uh, holding pest populations down. They're, they're predators. So you take those out of the system and um, you can sometimes have blowback from that. You can have the, the pest populations can explode when that natural enemy pressure is, is sort of released, if you will. So Virginia soybean growers won't be the first to deal with the invasion of Asian kudzu bugs, but they may be the first in the nation to deal with the collision of two different invasive insects. Another unintended import from Asia, the brown marmorated stink bug, landed in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1998 and has been wreaking havoc on fruit and vegetable crops for the past decade. It also, unfortunately, has a taste for soybeans, and that, Herbert says, puts Virginia in a unique position. This will likely be the first state in the U.S. where we may be dealing with both kudzu bug invasive from the south and brown marmorated stink bug invasive from the north in the same fields. Nobody's dealt with that before. For now, coping with the kudzu bugs mainly involves surveillance. Herbert says the Virginia Tech Extension Office has agricultural agents across the state who will be monitoring soybean fields and communicating with farmers through the state pest advisory published by Virginia Tech each week. We can't tell them it's necessarily in their field or not, but what we can do is say it's in their county. And, and these are the beans, this is the stage of the beans that they're in. If, you have, if you're in that county and have beans in that particular growth stage, uh, you better get out and look. Luckily for growers, even though the bug's reach is spreading rapidly, the damage it does to soybean plants occurs fairly slowly. Herbert says that means farmers often have a few weeks to save their crops, even after the bugs are discovered in their fields. That said, Herbert isn't optimistic about reversing the northern march of the Asian kudzu bug anytime soon. Uh, We're not going to stop this. Uh, This may not be our worst year. Let's hope it doesn't go as as far as it has in in the epicenter states. But right now, there's no reason to think it's not going to continue to go that direction. Maryland and Delaware also have thriving soybean crops. Herbert says he expects growers to spot the bugs in those states by the end of the summer. I'm Jonathan Wilson. To see pictures of the Asian kudzu bug and the brown murmurated stink bug, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you're a farmer or a gardener dealing with invasive pests, we want to know how are they affecting your garden. Send a note to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Time for a break now, but when we get back... Why Virginia officials are feeling a lot of heat over plans for a new road. Someone is smoking the wacky weed. Time's come to fess up. Plus, honoring the memory of a woman who started a special summer camp to lift up young girls. You hear people talking about lean in now and sort of if women can have it all. And I I believe Kelly, you know, had it all. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. 
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. On today's show, we are feeling the heat as we gear up for those sweltering days of summer. In just a bit, we'll hear about a brand new NASA mission that will study the intense heat of the sun, and we'll swing by one of the hottest art classes in town. First, though, we're going to take a less literal look at heat and consider the kind of heat you feel when you're under a lot of pressure, you know, and and people are less than pleased with what you're up to. We'll hear more on our regular transportation segment from A to B. A couple of government agencies are feeling quite a bit of heat right now, and WAMU's transportation reporter Martin DeCaro is here to explain it all. Welcome back to Metro Connection, Martin. Thanks, Rebecca. Glad to be here. All right. So angry residents, government officials taking heat. Where exactly are we headed here? We are headed to northern Virginia and the fight over the proposed road called the Bi-County Parkway. Hundreds of homeowners in Loudoun and Prince William counties have been attending public hearings to voice their complaints about this highway plan. Here's a sample of what people told the Virginia Department of Transportation and other state officials at a recent public meeting. That is a lie. Frankly, I double-dog dare you to try to put this kind of a road through Loudoun County's non-development area. They would have you all tarred and feathered. When I described your plan to a member of RHOA in a public meeting, his response was, someone is smoking the wacky weed. I don't know which of you it is, but time's come to fess up. These projects should be ranked by the reduction in congestion for the funds spent. And under that criteria alone, the North-South Corridor shouldn't get a dime of taxpayer funds. Yeah, they sound angry. Um, why don't we back up for a bit and explain what this plan is all about? All right, the overall project is called, quote, North-South Corridor of Statewide Significance. It would run from I-95 in Prince William all the way to Route 7 in Loudoun. That's 45 miles curving west of Dulles Airport and Manassas Battlefield. And I am assuming then that the Bi-County Parkway is is a part of this 45-mile road? Right. It would go from I-66 to Route 50. And to make this new road happen, VDOT and the National Park Service are pursuing an agreement in which the Park Service will give up a few acres on the western fringe of Manassas Battlefield so Virginia can build the Bi-County Parkway there. Now, in exchange, VDOT has promised to close Route 234 through the battlefield. The Park Service wants to get rid of all the traffic moving north-south through the hallowed ground of two Civil War battles. But, and of course there's always a but with this project, the Prince William County Board of Supervisors has a say about whether Route 234 should be closed. And Park Superintendent Ed Clark is urging them to agree to the closure. If the National Park Service can't have those guarantees that the road will close, then the Park Service has no business signing an agreement. Everyone is very focused on roads and neighborhoods and traffic, but nobody is really speaking, unfortunately, to what is my greatest concern, as that is is this nationally significant place, this hallowed ground. 
For now, the Prince William supervisors say they'll stick to their 2005 position and agree to close Route 234 once the Bi-County Parkway is completed, if it's ever built. Just for the sake of argument, let's say it is built. Um, What would the pros and cons be? Well, supporters among the business community and some commuters here say, look, keeping roads narrow has not prevented them from getting congested. And when you look at how the two counties are growing, another major highway will be necessary for commuters and for freight trucks heading to Dulles Airport. Opponents say the traffic problem in the western suburbs is not north-south. They say it's east-west. They need more east-west lanes. Look at I-66, for example. Plus, opponents fear a new highway, even with limited access, will create more congestion and sprawl, and no one wants that. Also, homes near Manassas lie in the quarter and could be displaced if the highway is built. Well, moving on to another transportation issue, also in Virginia. Um, Let's talk about the Silver Line. That's the metro line that, of course, would go out to Dulles Airport. We've been hearing reports that it may not open until early next year. Is, Is that true? Maybe. How do you like that for a non-committal answer? <laughs> so the Washington Post reported that faulty testing of the rail line safety systems could delay the opening. I asked Jack Potter, the CEO of the agency overseeing the Silver Line construction, if the project remains on schedule. He says it is set for completion September 9th, and then it'll be handed over to Metro for testing for up to 90 days. But it's a fluid situation. It's a fluid situation because of the fact that we're conducting tests now of what is a very complex system that's been, been built. And as we go through these tests, should we find that there are issues, it may require that you know, additional work be done. And there isn't much room now to extend the schedule. So in my view, if the Silver Line opens in early January instead of late December, I would not be shocked. Metro would rather not see it delayed, though, too many days because it wants to start collecting revenue on those trains. Well, let's move from trains to taxis. Um, The D.C. Taxicab Commission is in the middle of, I guess you could say, a rather tricky controversy at the moment. What is the latest problem? Well, as you know, all cabs in the district must install credit card machines by September 1st. Right. I know a lot of people have been waiting a long time for that. Yes, we finally stepped into the 20th century. But uh, (laughs) there is a potential issue. There are seven tech companies doing business in D.C. that offer smartphone apps that let you order and pay for a taxi right from the palm of your hand. Two of these companies, Uber and MyTaxi, say they won't be able to integrate their smartphone payment systems with a credit card software that will be used in the taxi cabs. And that will force them to shut down that part of their apps. Here is Uber DC's general manager, Rachel Holt, on the integration issue. In the 35-plus cities that Uber operates in, I've never seen done, and I've never seen done in any city in the U.S. But D.C. Taxi Cab Commission Chairman Ron Linton rejects the charge that his office is hostile to innovation. I think uh, that it's an unfair accusation to view us as a dinosaur. We've left everything to choice, and there is no technical advance that will not function that we're aware of at this point. So, Martin, are riders going to be inconvenienced? Well, the D.C. Taxicab Commission is saying one thing, that integration won't be a problem. The tech companies, Uber and MyTaxi, are saying integration won't work. So we'll find out in September if there will be a problem with the built-in credit card payment system you have in your smartphone app. Meantime, starting September 1st, base fares are going up to $3.25 plus a $0.25 cent surcharge to cover the costs of these enhancements. All right, so at this point, I feel like we need to hear some, some shiny, happy news, Martin. <laughs> what have you got for me? I do have some, at least 
opportunities for cyclists in the heat of summer. DDOT will lay asphalt to resurface the 15th Street cycle track, which happens to be the busiest bike lane in D.C. That project will be done this summer. All righty. I think we should end on that note. Uh, thanks so much, Martin, for getting us up to speed on things in the transportation You're world. You're welcome. Do you have a story about planes, trains, automobiles, or bikes that you'd like us to cover? Let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. Our Twitter handle is at wamumetro. And if you'd like to tweet transportation reporter Martin DeCaro right here directly, what is your handle, Martin? At Martin DeCaro. That's D-I-C-A-R-O. So this weekend brings the first official day of summer, right? And for many, many kids around the region, summertime means summer camp. And there are all sorts of camps out there. You've got drama camps, you've got sports camps, you've got science camps. But five years ago, a local woman named Kelly Murray created a camp with a very specific aim, boosting the self-esteem of young girls. The psychologist, professor, and mother of six died in a car crash in 2009. But as Jacob Fenston reports, her husband and close friends are carrying on her legacy. On June 26, 2009, the D.C. area was sweltering through a summer heat wave. But a cold front was heading east across the country. The National Weather Service issued a severe storm watch for that afternoon. Uh, I was at work, and my uh, my wife and my daughters were at uh, swim practice. She was actually helping out at a, a pasta dinner for the swim team. That's John Murray. Uh, my daughters were all involved and are still involved in swim team. And, you know, the started to storm. They gathered up, you know, all the pasta dinner accoutrement and sort of piled into our minivan and were headed home because the storm was quite severe. She was stuck at a traffic light at the corner of uh, Connecticut and East West Highway. A strong wind came, sort of blew over an oak tree, and it landed on uh, the minivan. Murray's wife, Kelly, and their seven-year-old daughter, Sloan, were pinned under the tree. Uh, a friend called and said, um, there's been an accident you really should go to the hospital, and he was very sort of nondescript. Kelly and Sloan died before rescuers arrived. Their deaths reverberated through Kelly's wide circle of friends and acquaintances. Hundreds of people attended the funeral in northwest D.C. She had a tremendous energy, and she wasn't just an energy for things that she wanted to do. It was an energy for other people. You know, a lot of her friends felt like, you know, that she was her, their very best friend. And when you have that through multitudes of people, suddenly you recognize that it's, you know, it's something unique to that individual that can sort of connect with that many people. Um, I think you can take a resume approach to our, I don't think it does her any justice, but the resume is, is incredible. Psychologist, author, professor. Deborah Soltis was a close friend of Kelly's. I think it's easy to look at somebody like Kelly and use labels like supermom. And, and I find them in some ways dismissive of what was really going on that implies busy and juggling, which, of course, is, is on the surface what it was. But the purpose of helping girls find their own voice was, I believe, fueled by this deeper purpose, not just a, a busy life. When Kelly Murray died, she was in the middle of preparing for a second summer of the girls' empowerment camp she'd started in 2008 called Girls Up. So the program was scheduled to begin about a week after the funeral. So I got Kelly's notes, some her handwritten notes, and uh, began to develop the curriculum. 
and went in that week and led the session. Soltis is now the executive director of Girls Up. The camp, which kicks off in early July this summer, is aimed at preteen girls. Helping girls figure out who they are before the world comes along and tells them who they should be. The program helps girls build confidence before they hit those middle school and high school years that can be so tough. There are a lot of disheartening studies out there that show that girls' self-esteem peaks up around age 9 and doesn't resurface for, at best, a decade later. Since Murray's death, Girls Up has gone from serving just a handful of kids to around 100 this summer. But Soltis says it's still Kelly's program. I always feel particularly connected to Kelly when the program is running because I can sort of hear her voice in there. John Murray, who serves as president of Girls Up, says the program also helps him and his daughters feel closer to Kelly. Just this July, my 10-year-old, who was, you know, six at the time, will go to Girls Up for the first time. At the time of the accident, you know, my older daughters had already been through it once. Uh, But this will be the first year that uh, Maeve uh, will be able to go through it and experience sort of some of what her mother was thinking about how she, you know, would like her to live her life and how she would like to approach, you know, the issues that girls face. Still, it's bittersweet each summer when the Girls Up camp rolls around. Bittersweet would be an understatement. He says it's great to watch the program grow each year, but it's also the anniversary of the tragic accident. It's, it's not, uh, not part of your life plan that you suddenly thrust into being a single father to five daughters ages, you know, at the time my youngest was nine months and my oldest was 12. The way I've sort of described it, I feel like, uh, you know, our wagon was attacked of our stuff was strewn all over the prairie. But at some point you say, you know what, our journey doesn't end here. So let's throw all all our stuff back into our covered wagon and proceed on to wherever we're going to go. I'm Jacob Fenston. While many young people head off to camp for the summer, thousands of them are heading off to, I guess you could say, the real world. That's right, summer means graduation time. And one of the thousands of students getting their diplomas in D.C. this month is Jennifer Hightower. The 18-year-old is finishing up her studies at the Cesar Chavez Public Charter School for Public Policy. And as Kavitha Cardoza tells us in the final part of our Beating the Odds series, Jennifer faced a real uphill battle to make it to graduation day. Jennifer Hightower doesn't take being happy for granted, because for many years, she wasn't. You would never think, like, somebody who's so happy went through stuff that I went through. Like, you would never expect it. When Jennifer was little, she was confused about why her mother didn't behave like her friend's mother's. I'd be, like, in school when she'd randomly come and be rude to teachers. My mother couldn't even cook something without falling asleep. I didn't understand how come everybody else's mother would go to work during the day and mine wouldn't. And I'm like, what do you do all day, and why don't you work? When Jennifer was eight, she understood the reason why her teachers looked embarrassed and her friends stared. She was on drugs, so I guess she was, like, smoking cocaine or sniffing cocaine. I don't know how that works, which one you sniff, which one you smoke. It's like she would flick out, like, and I couldn't reach her. Weekends were the worst. I would be in that house all day by myself sometimes because she would leave me. Like I said, she sold weed, so she had to go out and make a living. 
Because I'm like six years old, and you leaving me in this house by myself on a Saturday, and it's sunny outside, and it's nothing to do. And you tell me I can't go outside and play with the neighborhood kids because they're a bad influence. A low point was when Jennifer's mother dropped her off for the weekend with people Jennifer had never met before. That friend was also on drugs because I didn't like that smell. It was a whole bunch of strange men in there, too. And I was really uncomfortable. When she came back and got me, I was like, why would you leave me here? Like, what are you doing? Do you even know these people? Jennifer never actually asked the questions. She just stopped complaining about having to stay indoors because it was better than going back to that house. But she became more withdrawn and angry and self-sufficient. I had to teach myself how to cook. I'm dealing with hot, boiling water and fire from the stove. I'm six years old. I had to keep the house clean. I had to teach myself how to tie my own shoes. I didn't have somebody sit down and tell me, this is the little bunny tie that you do. All that stuff you see on TV, I didn't have that. I wanted to hang out with her and go places with her and her to be a good mother. Jennifer maintained a 3.9 GPA. For her... School was a refuge. School was like my way of escaping everything. I figured what my mother's doing doesn't have anything to do with my schoolwork, so I'm not going to like use that as an excuse. Jennifer and her mother had to move into her grandmother's apartment when theirs was being renovated. While they were there, her mother's health declined rapidly. She developed AIDS and had a series of strokes, but refused to go to a hospital. One day, I showed her my report card, and it was real good. And I don't know, like, I, I saw something in her I hadn't seen in a long time. Like, she looked happy. Jennifer's mother agreed to go to the hospital and was eventually moved to a nursing home. I think she saw my grades and she wanted to be around, see what I was going to do in life. For Jennifer, this was a blessing. My grandmother, she had got legal custody of me. I felt like I had a mother. Like, she would spend time with me and appreciate me for my accomplishments, my academic accomplishments, and she would, like, let me go outside. I felt like I actually had a real home. As Jennifer basked in her grandmother's attention, she continued to do well in school. For a few years, she ignored her mother. But eventually, she started visiting her. I love her. I'm not mad at her no more. It's no point in me holding a grudge. It already happened. People make mistakes in life. It was like, what else can you really do about it? Jennifer will attend American University in the fall to study accounting. I'm Kabita Kadosa. Up next, a brand new space mission studies the temperature of the sun. And if you're on the Earth and you go higher and higher, the atmosphere gets thinner and colder. But if you start on the sun and go from the visible surface and move upwards, the temperature just skyrockets. And a program at the University of Maryland teaches students how to melt metal in the pursuit of art. As they walk around, once the students get done the class, not only do they have an appreciation for things made in their environment, but they have a knowledge of how things were made and why things were made the way they were made. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And with the first day of summer upon us this week, we are pleased to present our annual Feeling the Heat show. Earlier in the hour, we visited Frager's Hardware, the iconic Capitol Hill store that was devastated by fire earlier this month. And in just a bit, we'll meet an artist at the University of Maryland who is constantly feeling the heat at his day job. 
quite literally, actually. But first, next week brings an event that could forever change our understanding of something so hot. Its temperatures can be 12,000 times more blistering than the hottest lava on Earth. We're talking about the sun. And I recently traveled to Greenbelt, Maryland, where I met a fellow... Hi. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Who's pretty well-versed when it comes to this sizzling celestial body. His name is Alex Young. And I'm a heliophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Heliophysics. What is that exactly? Well, helios comes from Greek for the sun, which is the center of our solar system, and it's driving everything that's happening. And the study of all of those processes that are happening throughout the solar system is heliophysics. Now, as Young will tell you, at the sun's core, temperatures are approximately 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. At its surface, they're far cooler, more like 10,000 degrees. But as you move outward from the surface toward what's known as the sun's corona... It's what you see during a total solar eclipse. There's a sort of wispy structure out. Temperatures shoot up again to a sweltering 3.6 million degrees. On the Earth, you'll higher and higher. The atmosphere gets thinner and colder. But one of the weirdest things about the sun's atmosphere, if you go from the visible surface and move upwards, all of a sudden the temperature just skyrockets. So that raises two big questions, says Young. One, why is that hotter? And two, how is that hotter? To find out, NASA is gearing up for a brand new mission it's calling IRIS. It stands for the Interface Region Imaging Spectrograph. The 403-pound satellite will launch on June 26th aboard a Pegasus XL rocket. Kind of like a glorified cruise missile. You strap it on the bottom of a big plane. You take the plane up in the air, and you drop it off, and it launches from there. Once Iris starts orbiting the Earth, it'll capture images of a mysterious region between the sun's surface and corona, an area known as the interface region. It's sort of the interface between the visible surface that we see and this crazy hot corona. So NASA actually does have other spacecraft studying the sun, like the Solar Dynamics Observatory, or SDO. Which is showing us the whole sun. But what sets IRIS apart is its ability to zoom in and capture high-resolution images of specific parts of the sun, like the interface region. Why is it important to study this region? What does it have to do with us? This does address and deal with a very important thing, because the sun produces all of these really dynamic, explosive phenomena. Also known as space weather, like solar flares. Basically big flashes of light. And sunspots. And that's where magnetic fields are coming up through the surface, and they're kind of like rubber bands, and they get all twisted, and eventually they pop, and they have to release energy. Then you have these sudden eruptions known as coronal mass ejections. And that's where big bubbles of stuff comes off the sun and magnetic field. Then those big blobs that come away from the sun, they're traveling at about a million miles an hour, maybe more. And sometimes they're directed at the Earth. When those coronal mass ejections slam into our magnetic field, our magnetosphere, creates these electrical disturbances. And those electrical disturbances can cause all kinds of havoc on our technology. All kinds of havoc, like satellite interference, power grid failures, and disrupted GPS services. Which is why Young says when it comes to space weather... We have to understand why it happens... What its effects will be... And ultimately, can we predict it? And this particular area, the interface region, 
plays a key role in how this energy gets through the solar atmosphere and drives space weather. So that, says Alex Young, is why IRIS is so critical. Because while it's often said there's nothing new under the sun, with this mission, NASA is hoping to prove that actually there's plenty new within it. To learn more about the Interface Region Imaging Spectrograph mission, including how you can monitor its data as the satellite orbits the Earth, visit our website, metroconnection.org. All right, we'll turn now from a celestial kind of heat to a more terrestrial one as we move a few miles away from NASA Goddard and head over to the University of Maryland in College Park. Lauren Ober takes it from there. Stephen Jones's office is hot. I mean, really hot. Like, melt your face off hot. Like, you need to drink a gallon of water every minute hot. Okay, you get the point. Jones is a sculptor and adjunct professor at University of Maryland, where he runs the metal casting program. The furnace Jones uses to heat up the metals burns at more than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than a burning candle, a smoldering cigarette, even molten lava. Needless to say, Jones's job makes him a little bit sweaty. So we always start with aluminum because it melts at a lower temperature, and then we'll put in the bronze crucible. We'll pull away the aluminum molds, bring out the bronze molds and pour the bronze. Uh, Bronze melts around 1800. We probably poured around 2100 degrees Fahrenheit. Aluminum melts at around 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. We pour around 15 or 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a hot business. It is hot business, yes. Jones has been teaching metal casting at Maryland for more than a decade. The class takes students through the process of creating a variety of molds, pouring the metals, and shining up the final pieces. Today's the last day of class. It's our last pour. We'll be pouring aluminum and bronze. The students have a series of molds for aluminum and for bronze. And when you say pour, what do you mean? What is actually going to happen? The pour means that we will be melting the metal in a furnace and then using a crane as some other tools to lift the molten metal out of the furnace and pour them into the molds. And inside of each mold is a cavity that is created by the students by either making a pattern or carving into the sand to accept the metal. The molds the students have come up with span the sculptural spectrum. There's a relief of a face, an antique gun, even baby flip-flops. They get one last inspection before the big pour. Until then, the metal shop is buzzing with drills, wire brushes, and the sound of the furnace rumbling awake in the next room. The furnace is a special part of the sculpture department, Jones says. Not many university art programs have them anymore. So the furnace has been here at University of Maryland in excess of 20 years, probably longer. It melts 125 pounds of aluminum, 475 pounds of bronze, which is a lot of aluminum, a lot of bronze. At University of Maryland, we have a fairly large and robust foundry and sculpture equipment area. 50 years ago, kids in junior high would have been doing aluminum casting, and they would have then gone into engineering and some other fields based on that hands-on experiences that they had. And now the art department is kind of the last venue of actually making in that way. So now we're, we're getting the architects and the engineering students 
that come to us to actually learn how to weld and learn how to cast and learn some of the hands-on ways of making. The process of heating up the metals begins with propane, which creates a little tornado of fire around the crucible. The crucible is the vessel that holds the metal within the furnace. As the heat rises around the crucible, the metal will start to melt. More metal is added until there is enough to fill all the molds. At full blast, the furnace spews a vibrant green flame from a hole in the top. It's so loud, it sounds like you're standing inside a jet engine. The heat is nearly unbearable. Imagine standing inches from a towering, white-hot bonfire. This is the type of heat the furnace throws off. At one point, I am pretty sure my glasses might melt down my face. While the metal melts, the students put on protective leather jackets, aprons, and safety glasses. Those who will be doing the pouring also wear helmets with face shields, thick leather gloves, and heavy leather spats. All right, guys, it's going to be a little more. When the aluminum is ready, Jones gives the students orders with military precision. Good job. All right, down a crank. Okay, you're on it. Three, two, one. The crucible with the molten aluminum glows bright red as the students tip to pour the metal into the molds. When the molds are full, the rest of the aluminum is poured into forms that look like bread loaf pans. Those will be reheated and used in a future pour. Four, three, two, one. A little slower, a little slower. Guys, great pour, great class. Y'all did a wonderful job. Y'all made some uh, nice pieces. Great pouring to the pour teams. Now we're just going to let these cool, then come back and bust them open. All right, so uh, great job. Congratulations. Jones wipes the sweat from his brow as he says this. Then he encourages his students to drink lots of water to stay hydrated, as if they needed any more reminders of just how scorching this work can be. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see Steve Jones and his students pouring aluminum and bronze? Well, you're in luck. We have a slideshow on our website, metroconnection.org. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Fill the cup with my baby tonight, but I ain't up to my baby tonight cause it's too dark. And now our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Camp Springs, Maryland and the Seminary Ridge neighborhood of Alexandria, Virginia. I'm Tammy Jones. I live in Camp Springs, Maryland. It's in Prince George's County, Maryland, right outside the Beltway near Branch Avenue. Uh, Andrews Air Force Base is in Camp Springs. It got its name from soldiers who would actually come from Washington, D.C. en route to Fort Meade, and they would camp over in Camp Springs. And there were so many beautiful, abundant springs here in the area that it just, they started calling it Camp Springs. I think uh, Andrews Air Force Base brought in a lot of uh, families. As a result, single-family homes were developed and strip malls were developed. So around the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we started seeing suburban sprawl. I'd say Camp Springs has one of the largest home ownerships in the state of Maryland, with 80% of the residents owning their homes. 
It's a great community, beautiful neighborhoods, close proximity to everything. Washington, D.C., National Harbor, Baltimore. So we have easy access, lots of transportation, and we have lovely people in our community. My name is Michael Souza. I'm 49 years old and I live in the neighborhood of Seminary Ridge, bounded by Seminary Road to the north and roughly Duke Street to the south, Quaker Lane to the east, and St. Stephen's Road. Seminary Ridge was built between 1972 and 1974. It was a lot of original owners were military. The Episcopal Seminary is, is across Seminary Road from the neighborhood, and part of the grounds of the neighborhood was uh, part of the original seminary. And during the Civil War, there was a fort that was built up on the, the ridge here, uh, Fort Worth, and the neighborhood is uh, on the grounds of that fort. A lot of young families have really moved in looking for a lot of the amenities that we did. You know, being close to Douglas MacArthur Elementary School is a real draw. It has a, a good reputation and a lot of people are seeing the benefit of those being close to the school as well as the advantages of public schools within Alexandria. We have three to four different events that bring the families together every year. Everything from a neighborhood Halloween party, a holiday party, we have a big cookout that all the members of the neighborhood come and participate in. It's a real slice of, of Washington life. We heard from Tammy Jones in Camp Springs and Michael Souza in Seminary Ridge. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or you can always send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Martin DeCaro, and Kavitha Cardoza, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our interns are Eva Harder and Kayla Peoples. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there, or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you'll join us next week when we'll go off theme and present one of our freewheeling wild cards shows. We'll meet the first black helicopter pilot to serve in the U.S. Army. We'll look at our nation's capital through the eyes of an alien from outer space. And we'll explore one beach town's efforts to maintain its family-friendly reputation, despite its boisterous party scene. Every June, our population increases from 7,000 to a neighborhood of 300,000 on every given summer week. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.